Super chill. Hey, everybody. Tyree and Kevin here with Before I Forget. Say hey, Kevin. Hello, Kevin. Welcome back. We're all up in this in this camp now. For real, for real. Back to the back to the thick of Before I Forgetness. Or what? Back to the, into the thick of it. It's into the thick of the forgetfulness. That is Before I Forget. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hey, and on that. That's actually a, a decent segue what? Um, into what's 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 coming up. We got 20, 20 years, man. Yeah, we've we've we have we have. It's been twenty years. Next month, February of, of twenty uh, two thousand four, we deployed to Iraq twenty years ago this year. And this whole show started because you know we're forgetting shit. We're getting further away from the events that you know, for better or for worse, made us who we are today. And uh, so we're going to have a whole new thing. And once you want, you can, you can tell people about it. It was, it was definitely your idea. Okay. Um, so like Kevin said, 20 years is a long fucking time, man. It's a big deal for me personally, for everyone who was involved um, and who made it back and who didn't make it back. It's a, uh, it's a big deal, man. Um so, like you kind of explained, every month we're going to have a show specifically based on the month that we were deployed, explaining that month that that we did things. So, we're going to have different guests on the show. It's not just going to be me and Kevin. It's going to be me, Kevin, and other people from other companies who are also involved in this. Um, National Guard also. Uh, it's going to be great, man. I'm really pumped about it. I'm glad everyone's going to be able to tell their story exactly how it went. Uh, we can all clean up each other's memory fog with stuff when we're telling these stories uh, during this time. Um, I'm excited. It's going to be great. Yeah, I am too, man. I am too. Especially, so you, you said the National Guard. We deployed with a company out of uh, the Charlie, or the Charlie Company, 2nd 108th out of New York uh, National Guard. And um, that's particularly, particularly uh, of interest to me. Because these dudes, we deployed to Iraq in February of 2004. So you're talking three and a half years after 9-11. So these guys were there in that state when 9-11 went down. So we're going to be able to talk to one of the soldiers in the company and the company commander. Hmm. Um, so that show is coming up next month, right? It's February. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Next month. Actually, shit, two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Time's fine, man. <laughs> so... Um, so pretty excited about that because we haven't been able to, since we've been doing the show, we've been able to record guys that we deployed with. Um, and if you go back to our first season, um, then you you can hear a lot of those stories. It's all dudes that we deployed with, but this is the first time we will be able to talk to somebody from the national guard, uh, company that was, uh, attached to us. So that's pretty rad. Pretty excited about that. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, 20 years, man, 20 years is a long, like you said, a long fucking time. Yeah, and, uh, and and like over the last uh, few days, just to kind of sidetrack McGee over here, like uh, because we've been thinking about this whole 20-year thing, like I've been having so many different new memories about stuff that I totally mm-hmm. forgot about that are now like, that are coming back up, and I can't wait to talk about like certain months of this thing, not just because of the combat, but just because of the, the environment. Like uh, there was, you guys, as much as you know war is hell and all sorts of shit like this, uh, the country was beautiful to me. I mean, 
people made it funky, but if you were just around in the nature part, like we walked through these fucking oh, you know what? We'll talk about it during those months, but man, it's just uh these cool memories are, you, are coming back. Are you talking about the oasis that we went through? Yeah. Um and what we called the Garden of Eden. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. we did that shit, man. That's fucking nuts. <laughs> we were a part of that. Like uh reg- yeah. no matter how you slice it, like we we our our DNA's on it. So it yeah. makes me proud to be able no, to say and that. I think and not and not only that, but so I'm a I'm a big history person. Um so I'm going to school for so I can teach it. And just being over there, like the ruins in Samara, the town that we all operated in, um, the ruins go back like two, three thousand years, you know. Like that to me was fucking wild. Like I'm not a religious person, but if you if you subscribe to uh Christianity um or Judaism, um <clears throat> then this part of the world that we were in and this area dating back to over 2000 years ago, there's a lot of uh, religious significance there. Um, so that's kind of a neat thing. Just it's, it's neat to think about like all the things that went down, people that went through there and all that cool stuff. Yeah. Um, and not just to like walk through those streets, but in some cases like be inside of some of those buildings or like the spiral minaret that was built in the seventh century mm-hmm. that we were on top of. You know what I mean? So, yeah. The picture um, that I took on top of that got me that commercial. Oh, really? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, and on t- so 20 years is a long time. And, and, and like you said earlier, like war is hell. It can be hell. I mean, there's, there's definitely good things about where we were and what we were doing, or what we were trying to do. Um, it's being able to see the, the good things in the bad things. <clears throat> but aside from that, like war can be pretty, pretty terrible. Um, for a lot of people. And I think um, in this episode, we're going to talk about um, some of that stuff, PTSD related, um, you know, talking about like how that affected us when we came home and then, you know, like the, the, the following the years following and then up to 20 years later, um, how some of these things still impact our lives and our mental health. So, um, and what kind of, I just want to give a shout out to my brother. What kind of brought this all up is my brother is a, is a, is a university professor down in Texas and he's got some presentation that he's got to give to some of his uh, fellow faculty members, his coworkers. And I guess on this one, he is choosing to do it on post-traumatic stress disorder and, and asked me to make like a 20 minute video, um, kind of talking about some of these questions that we're going to go over today. Um, and these questions were handpicked by himself and the, uh, I believe the head of the psychology department at his school. So there's some, there's some really good questions. And, um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think it'll be fun to talk about. Uh, could be a trigger warning for people who still struggle with this sort of thing. So there's that. Um, but, uh, I think the goal of this, at least in my mind for the show is, to let people know that like, here we are 20 years later, this is how we are still impacted. These are ways that we have attempted to cope. These are things that have worked um, and things that have not worked. And, uh, and hopefully other people can chime in, in the comments um, on Facebook or YouTube or wherever, and maybe even, you know, find some, some help um, in this episode. So, oh, yeah. yeah. So, um, <clears throat> You just want to go ahead and we can get right into it if you want. Yeah, let's hit it, man. All right. Um, 
So the very first question that's on here is, can you share some of your personal experiences during Operation Iraqi Freedom, particularly those that had a lasting impact on you? Are you okay? So um, for me personally, mm-hmm. uh, one thing that has always had a lasting impact on me in that experience was, uh, again, it was the death of Ryder, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like I, it, I explained it before in other shows, but uh, youngest guy in the company, really weird, screwed up kind of a situation that we were in. Um, for test firing of all things, uh, mm-hmm. not to say that it's not a safe thing to do because you know shit happens and clearly shit happened here. Um, but definitely that's something that affected me more than anything else. Anything else I've seen during that. Well, no, there's some other things. Um, but I think that more than anything else. Yeah, that's definitely a significant one, especially considering your proximity to Kreider when it happened. Um, and that would actually be a good episode, I think, to bring back Doc Skillen, mm-hmm. uh, to talk to, if he's, if he's willing to do that, cause he was the medic that first made it to Kreider when that happened. And if, if some of you are new listeners who haven't gone back and listened to the first season, which is fine. Cause those are long episodes. <laughs> uh, we can kind of touch on it a little bit here. So Dustin Kreider was the youngest guy in our company and our newest, um, uh, newest guy. And I think he'd only been in the company for six months before we deployed there about. And on March 21st, we were rolling out on mission and it was standard for us to stop at the test fire pit and um, test fire our weapons. The dismounts would get out of the Bradleys, fire into this big hole in the ground, and then we would all mount back up and then the Bradleys would fire their, their 240 Charlies, their machine guns, just to make sure all weapon systems operated. This was SOP every time we went out. But this particular day, there was a uh, a misfire, or not a misfire, miscommunication with one of the tracks. I think I have that backwards. No, the Bradleys would fire first, and then we would get out. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. And, um, But anyway, so there's some miscommunication with one of the tracks that was trying to fire. I guess they had an issue with their gun, didn't quite communicate it very well. And we had dismounted because somebody said so, and we, you know, they dropped ramps, we got out, and then... As that gun got there, or as that track got their gun back up, you know, the uh, Bradley commander tells the gunner to go ahead and fire. Bradley, the gunner asks if it's clear. Commander says, yeah. Guy pulls the trigger, and just as he's pulling the trigger, Dustin Kreider walks into the sights. So there's a lot of things that went wrong with that, and we'll, we will definitely uh, probably go into more detail about that in March um, for that episode. But uh, it was definitely I, – I was pretty far away from it. I was probably – 30 meters away when that happened. And, um, I only saw, you know, the after. So Kreider had, had just about hit the ground. And, uh, I watched doc hurl his M16 and go over there and try and do doc things, which yeah, doc, doc skilling, man, probably one of the, the, the baddest dudes. Love that guy. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. So that one, that's definitely a lasting one for sure. Um, I think for me, and this is probably going to sound a little weird, but one of the things that, that, that always stuck with me was we were, when we were out of patrol base, Uvani, there was always that house that we went to on, in the, um, at that one intersection 
we always went there at night and to clear the house and we would set up on the roof to overwatch that intersection mm-hmm. do you remember that yeah i think you might have been on the tracks at that point i can't remember yeah but i remember like going there yeah mm-hmm. so i remember being up on the rooftop and the the house to the north there was a little girl who came to the window with a sign she kept holding up a sign that said please help and i was like that's odd like she's writing it in english please help um and so i i go relay the information to um i guess it would have been you know sergeant smith or whoever the squad leader was at the time and we you know pass that on to platoon sergeant and the pl commander comes up there with an interpreter and we pull this girl out of the house she comes out of the house and the interpreter talks to her and apparently she tells us about how her uncle and her father are bomb makers they have ied making materials in the basement of this building of this house and um she wanted us to save her from that because she did she wasn't down with that, that sort of thing if i remember right she was like 11 12 years old um, not quite old enough in Islam to wear the burqa and the hijab. So whatever age that is. And anyway, um, so we didn't, we didn't hit that house immediately. Like we could have, but we didn't, um, instead they went back and created this plan about how we're going to coordinate area off and then hit the house and do a raid and all that. So we came back two weeks later, the house was completely empty and, um, I just, I can't help but think about what happened to that girl, um, after that, like, cause we sent her back home, like we sent her back into that house and, and we told her parents that she was throwing rocks at us hmm. or whatever. And we, we pulled her out and gave her a stern talking to and said, don't do that again, blah, blah, blah. And it, to me, it just seemed like a, a bullshit story. So I don't know. I, I, so I can't, I can't help but wonder what happened to that little girl. Um, her name was, <clears throat> she told us her name was Danny, D-A-N-I. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure that's like a translation of her name or something. I, don't, I have no idea, but that that actually stuck with me more because I mean, you think like we're there, you know, the whole hearts and minds, and and uh, you know, we're trying to win these people over. But like, you know, because we would do those missions where we would go buy shoes or toys or soccer balls, or whatever, and hand them out to kids and everything. And yeah, the next day, you know, in that same area, we would get lit up. You know, there's be some type of ambush or something like that. So it's hard to kind of maintain the that hearts and minds presence, you know, trying to be the good guy in this country that didn't even want us there in the first place, you know, caught up in the middle of their civil war between the Sunni and the Shia. Um, so it was stuff like that that really kind of bothered me. The the nice people that we met, the the kids that were genuinely nice. Um, that one house that uh, we were in when when Dave got hit, um, I remember. <laughs> Uh, the the brother and sister that lived there. I can't remember his name. Her name was a beer. And the only reason I can remember that is because a beer, right? Mm-hmm, right. You know, um, but like, I can't help but like wonder like what, what, what is it, what has become of these people, especially after, you know, ISIS had taken over and uh, pretty much dragged all of these military age males out to the desert and just gunned them down, you know? So I can't, I can't help but wonder about that stuff. Um, so it wasn't so much about like the combat stuff that really kind of ate, ate, ate at me. It was like more of more of that stuff, like the good people that we met there and, and how their lives were impacted. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah. When it when it comes to like the hearts and minds kind of a thing, like at the end of that part of the, the, the tour, I was mounted, so I wasn't really interacting with people a lot. 
um, on the street so much. I did come across a small, I guess a small family, uh, man, woman, two kids, a girl and, and a, maybe two two girls. And um, every now and then finance would come to Brassfield more and you can grab some money. So after, I don't know how many times we stopped by this intersection and hung out by this house and did all this kind of shit. The kids came out and they fucking were always cool with us. We never got shot at in this area or anything like that. And then one day we did and their house got shot up. It wasn't by us. It pissed me off, but whatever. And I took a bunch of money from finance and like just gave it to him. I think it was had to have been like at least six or seven hundred bucks American. Dang. Yeah. I didn't have no fucking use for money, man. I'm like, what else can we do to help these people out really? Like really actually help them. I I can't. Right. I mean, we could sit here and do patrols all day and that's probably the reason why this shit got shot up because they think we're talking to them and, you know, whatever. But, you know, they were so fucking happy, and I was like, "Whatever, it's just money. Who get? Who cares?" I remember Parlo was like, "Hey, man, that it's a lot of money you just gave that kid." I'm like, "Yeah, I know. They shot up their house," and he like stopped and thought about it. I think for a second, he didn't say shit else about it, but I think he like understood that maybe there's some different ways you can make an impact on somebody besides hoping they get some kind of help, and you can actually stick your hand out and give them something real is is a good thing so that was another thing that's uh the only hearts and minds thing i remember about the entire thing for me personally and i thought that was cool and hopefully everything worked out for them uh i don't know what happened i tried not to think about it i tried it in my head thinking them as like just happy and peaceful and everything but the reality is they're probably not it's probably completely fucked where they are um yeah but you never know, though, man. I mean, you think, I mean, 600, 700 bucks to them is a lot of money, yeah. right? Because they're the exchange rate from the Iraqi dinar to mm-hmm. U.S. money. <clears throat> but had to have been I mean, a scotch have... under a million dinar, really, because I remember buying a million dinar and it was like uh, eight or nine hundred bucks. And I can't find it yeah. anywhere now, whatever. But <clears throat> yeah. But yeah, I mean, you, that yeah, you're you're probably right. Of all the things that we did that year, that probably had more of an impact <laughs> than everything else that we attempted to do. Yeah, um, and I do remember like when we, when we would do like raids on houses and we found weapons caches and all that stuff, and we found large amounts of money. We would take that um, and recirculate it. Mm-hmm. Like we would take that money and we would just give it out to people. Go, you know, give it to shops or whatever, right? So like that was a thing that we did, right? I mean, we weren't exactly taking we weren't taking money from from random houses we were taking money from these houses that like we hit them they definitely had bad guy stuff uh, ied making material weapons caches and all that stuff and large amounts of money and that's not money that we need right because we're getting paid to be there exactly so why not just give that money to the people that actually need it um so but yeah uh that is yeah i think that's probably that probably have more of an impact <laughs> than anything else we did right yeah Fucking give them some money. Let them go do what the fuck they want to do with it. They want to paint a house. Let them paint a house. You want them to fill up the bullet holes we we put there. Somebody else put there. Fucking let them do it. They want to well, feed yeah. people. And I can't help but wonder it. if that was enough money for them to be able to even get out of the country. Fuck, I don't know, man. Yeah. Hopefully, you know? you know. Hopefully, there's someplace chilling. Twenty yeah. years later, the little kids are fucking you know done with college or whatever. In my head, that's mm-hmm. where they are. In yeah, reality. I heard- mm, I try yeah. not to think about it. 
I've heard a couple of the stories, and actually we've had somebody on the show who uh, was like that, who kind of falls under this category, but like who grew up there during the war and their family was able to get out of the country. And these kids, like one of them, there's a Army Times article about her. She joined uh, the Marine Corps. And then there's another one that joined the Army. And then the one that we had on the show, um, and she's she actually works somewhere in the uh, in the in the Middle East part of the the world um, as a linguist. So it does happen, right? There are there are some of these like success stories where some of these kids do get out and try to make their 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 world or their their, their lives or whatever a better place. So that's pretty cool. Hell yeah. Um. So the second question. Um, well, so this one is like specifically directed at me, but I think I would change that one part to apply to you being a cop, but like, how did your role as an army drill sergeant and being part of the occupying, occupying infantry in Baghdad contribute to the development of PTSD symptoms? Um, I don't really know that that question in my mind makes a lot of sense, especially as it relates to me being a drill sergeant and we didn't occupy Baghdad. We were in Samara, but similar circumstances i suppose Mm. i think the way i kind of read this is like how did my my ptsd symptoms or the development of them or whatever have an impact on my role as a drill sergeant like um okay that's kind of see that yeah is that kind of you read it that way Mm -hmm. i i think um i struggled a lot when i came home like I was angry and I drank a lot and I was detached, extremely detached, um, emotionless. People called me cold, um, really dark sense of humor, which I think that still kind of stuck with me. Um, but you know, that's, that's military humor for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I became a drill sergeant and I, I stood in front of my first group of trainees like that had a huge impact on me recovering and I learned something there. So when I was talking to these trainees, I mean, my first time on the trail as a drill sergeant was in 2009 during the resurgence, um, especially in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So we had a lot of troops and a, like the average deployment time was like two months after the completion of uh, basic training in AIT. And so I made it my personal mission to give them every bit of knowledge that I had from my experiences from our deployment to Iraq in 2004, um, because it was important to me, right? I didn't want to hear about like, you know, a trainee of mine getting fucking caught up in some bad shit or killed because they weren't trained properly. They didn't get enough training before they went. So I, I, I made it my personal mission to make the training as realistic as possible and to be as honest as possible with them about what they're going to experience and what the impacts of those experiences are after the fact, because nobody talked to us about that. We never had that conversation when we came back and we had to go through that little fucking transition bullshit over at con con barracks. You know, I remember the question from a social worker, do you have PTSD? And I said, I don't even know what PTSD is. She's like, well, if you don't have it or if you don't know what it is, you probably don't have it. And if you do have it, any symptoms should subside within eight weeks. I was like, okay, great. You know, if if there is something wrong with me, I'll be good in two months. Easy peasy. That shit didn't even hit me until like three or four months later. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, And I don't know. I don't know if this lady was just speaking out her ass or it was just what she was told to say. I have no idea. But um, so when I became a drill, 
you know, and I was talking to these trainees, you know, I would talk to them about stuff and they, and I would, you know, they could ask questions, right? I, mean, I wasn't your typical drill sergeant, I suppose, because I allowed them to ask the question that they wanted to ask as it pertained to their job in the army. And I gave them the best honest answer that I could. And there was one time, I believe that was in 2010. So like I'm addressing my, my troops after a day of training, we're sitting on these bleachers outside of the company training area. And I damn near broke down, like trying to tell them what I was trying to tell them. And I don't know what it was about now, but like I held it together, <laughs> but you know, that's the extent that I, that I took it. I took that job very serious. And I, I did have, I have had a couple of uh, my former trainees who have died um, overseas. Matter of fact, 2011, when Obama declared victory in Iraq, three days after that, there was a, a couple of uh, soldiers that died over there. One of those was mine. Mm. So pretty shitty, but um, you know, it's kind of part of the job, right? Yeah. But um, so I wouldn't say that like being a drill sergeant um, had anything to do with the development of PTSD. I think it had more to do with like understanding um, how it was impacting me because I was able to explain it to those around me. And it taught me that being able to talk about it matters a lot. Um, cause when I came home, I, I had my uncle who went to Vietnam and he's like, he told me he'd gone to all these different types of therapy, group therapy and whatever else. And I said, none of it worked. All of it, all, all it did was make him have more flashbacks and flared up his PTSD and just made things worse. Yeah. And so I was like, well, fuck it, man. Uh, I'm not going to talk about it either. So I didn't, I killed held a lot of it in. And then, you know, finally, you know, you, you find a reason to talk about it. Um, and suddenly you start to see like, okay, it's, 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 it definitely impacts me. It definitely has a negative effect, but I can turn it around and have a positive effect out of it yeah. and hopefully help these other people who will definitely experience the same thing I experienced. So, yeah, I think for that question, man, like I would, you know, in, in terms of your, you being LAPD, um, like how would that, how did that help or not help? Um, I think personally, um, because I was the rookie going in, it was like starting all over, like being a fucking private all over again. But I had so much more knowledge about what we should do in a, in any particularly dangerous situation. Um, if there was a house to go into, I wanted to go in first because I know what, what to do. Um, I needed to trust these people that I was working with. So we trained a lot, like a lot. You'd be like, fuck, you guys, we know, I know his job. He knows my job. The whole group knows everything that we're supposed to be doing. It's like a little fucking platoon here, a little squad. And I think, um, taking what I've learned from the army, from the deployments, from that part, the, extra cautiousness the super hyper awareness i totally put that into my police work because to me like police work is so much more worse than the army like you expect war and terrible things in a war zone but you don't expect a war zone and terrible things in someone's house in the middle of the city that'll fuck you up hard if you're not ready for it. And man, at first I was not ready for it. I thought I had seen the worst things I could possibly see from, from combat. But no, man, like 
humans with vendettas against each other will do the craziest things. And the people who I work with, they weren't really used to seeing that kind of stuff. I was used to it. But, you know, it still kicked it up an extra notch for me, but it was still something I could still see and, and handle. And it's crazy that a lot of people couldn't to me because why would you do this job if you couldn't? handle yeah. you know but that's just not yeah. how the world works like we're not all the same everyone's different and uh we all process you know trauma differently yeah when i think there's a level of of naivety when it comes to people wanting to get into law enforcement oh yeah um it's you know all... what i'm saying like <laughs> you know what we see, you know, it's just cops on patrol pulling people over, getting on tickets and doing minor investigations and stuff like that. But like, and now thanks to social media and, and certain accounts that you can find on social media, you can actually see like some of the engagements that law enforcement officers get into and the type of fucked up shit that they have to respond to. Yeah. And this is, this is not just like when we went to Iraq, we're in Iraq, we're expecting war. We're expecting bad things to happen. We're expecting to see blown apart body parts and, and, uh, and fuck, just fucked up shit. Yeah. But when you are patrolling the town that you live in, where you are surrounded by your neighbors, and you're still seeing this kind of stuff, like that's a whole different ball game. Yeah. Yeah. Like for sure, dude. Like that. I can. To me, I can see. I can see that exasperating your PTSD. And I think you you've said it before that like law enforcement officers who also served in the military have a higher rate of suicide yeah. than your average American and your average soldier and your average law enforcement person. Mm-hmm. So like that fucking says a lot, you know what I mean? It's just um, the way you, the fucking, and you did that shit for 13 years. It's the way the job is set up, man. It's, uh, it, you go from call to call. It's a roller coaster the entire day. Something you can go from talking to kids at a school tell them to stay out of drugs and don't do school (laughs) and then uh the next call could be a shooting or the next call could be a kid gets ran over by a car or a really bad accident where there's a decapitation like holy fuck and then the call after that is some domestic violence shit it's not even like physically domestic violence just people arguing with each other after you just saw one family get crushed here's this family arguing about who burnt the fucking cookies it's like if you guys had just seen what i came from but i can't show you that because now i'm a bad cop yeah Uh, right but yeah well you know when we've talked about this before um i think i used the example of uh when you get pulled over by a cop for speeding or because you didn't use your blinker you were left of center or whatever arbitrary trivial thing you think it is and you know, you're being an asshole to this cop. You don't know what call they just came from. You know, you don't know what the last week of their life has been, you know, like what they had to respond to. Um, and you're over here just, you know, with your phone in their face, trying to like record them for fucking, you know, some Instagram video, trying to call out the fucking police for being bad guys. When like, you know, that cop may have just come from something fucked up like that. I live here in Northwest Arkansas. It's a pretty crime-free area. It's a it's a pretty safe place. But I have friends who are on the the, the PD in one of the bigger towns, mm-hmm. and they get response. They get calls to some fucked up shit, 
you know, murders, like flat out fucking cold blooded murder, you know, child abductions, um, gang related stuff like, you know, and people don't think like I'm, I'm in, I'm in this very liberal area of, of Arkansas crime doesn't happen here. And it does. And so you're in, in, and you're out there in Los Angeles, right? Like the fucking thick of it. I think, you know, to get any more dangerous, you need to go to fucking Chicago. You know what I mean? Man, I've seen some videos about shit that goes on over there in Chicago. Like LA's kind of, it's, it's, I think it's gotten a lot better than what it was. Not even to say things were really, really terrible back then. Like, it's not like people are just walking around fucking shooting shit up constantly and fucking drive-bys everywhere like in the movies. But there was some places you might not want to go to. But even those places now, they're different. It's, uh, <clears throat> just to put it in a plain English way for people to understand, like, there were a lot of ghetto places that are now, like, they got white folks in them now. Like, it's different. It's not the same. Mm-hmm doesn't mean there's not any crime because there's still crime there it's different but it's still crime it's it's i guess it just changes with the times um mm-hmm. i was in an area like I, my my wife's daughter lives in um this part of la uh a few years ago if i would have told you oh man she she lives in this area you'd be like man really y'all really live over there I'd be like no it's it's fucking nice. We just had a baby shower over there. It was fucking. I walked around the neighborhood late, talking on the phone to people, and I'm wearing this Dodger blue jacket in this in this particular neighborhood. Like, and people are just waving, saying hi, being cool. It's not nothing like it was back in the day. It's not as bad as people think. Like, yeah. you got to dump that stereotype that like L.A.'s the right. hell hell zone, but. There's yeah, still crime. Well, yeah. It's still bad shit going on there. Don't, don't you get got movies like Friday and um, Boys in the Hood. You know what I'm saying? You got movies like that. And, you know, what the news put out, you, know, you got the fucking the crack epidemic and um, the L.A. riots. Uh, what was that? Was that in Koreatown? Where the Korean folks were on top oh, of their rooftops. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. was, that the, was that a part of the L.A. riots? Yep. I remember watching that yeah. shit on TV. Yeah. And then you got like, you know, certain rap groups from the from the late eighties, early mid nineties, you know, talking about all the bullshit they grew up around. And I don't I don't I don't I don't think they're lying or over exaggerating. I think it's if anything, it's probably an under exaggeration, right? Like I think these dudes are, you know, not able to tell their complete story. Um, you know <laughs> I you know, Ice Cube said in in a song live, you know, if if uh if uh, if they didn't create these kind of adi- conditions, I wouldn't have nothing to rap about. Yeah. And uh, and I was like, yeah, I mean, and I didn't grow up there. You did though. And I, and I was gonna kind of ask you, like, do you think growing up there and in, in that in that and because you grew up in neighborhoods that I heard about in songs. Remember when when I first found out you, where you were from, and I was yeah. like, that's that's a real fucking place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, my dumbass from fucking BFE Noir, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. You know, like, <clears throat> like so growing up in that area. And like for me, hearing about you know crimes that happen in Los Angeles, I mean that's the entire country away from me. For you, that's like the town that you live in, a few towns over, um, you know, which in LA is a few blocks over. Um, <laughs> like, do you think that had like how do you think how do you think that impacted like your experiences in the military and then as a, as a cop in the LAPD, your upbringing, like what you grew up around? Mm. 
I think. Hmm. Things weren't as bad in my head as they were maybe in real life compared to other things. I guess. Uh, like I, I didn't have friends that got murdered, but I know people who got murdered. In, in some crazy situations this girl in high school got fucking tied up and shot in the head fucking and burnt up yeah, right. like around Halloween it was the craziest shit ever um, like things like that would pop up every now and then but that kind of shit was happening everywhere but in my immediate circle I didn't really get a lot of that kind of crazy shit like in the environment we lived in like New Year's was we we're gonna to go to my grandma's house. She lives off uh, Crenshaw on One Eighteenth, and and if you're in that area for New Year's Eve, it's going to get shot up. Not they're not shooting up houses, but they're shooting up in the air. Maybe they are shooting up houses. You don't know, but like the entire night is nothing but gunfire. Fucking, it's crazy. As a little kid, you hear this, and we're fucking. <laughs> bringing in the new year's sipping that fucking bubbly uh apple juice on the ground fucking face to face with each other because these motherfuckers are out here shooting shit up and we don't get hit hit, i want to get hit by a stray like that's the kind of shit those people around there did it's dumb but that's the kind of shit that we had to deal with like uh if if you know certain people and you know a lot worse things like I know some folks who did a lot of fucked up stuff sometimes to the point where I'm like I can't believe I'm 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 associated with these people like you're a fucking Mm -hmm. criminal like you should be behind bars you should be up underneath the jail dude but it's just normal to them it's just everyday life you know they always say it's like a, a struggle like a kill or be killed kind of a mentality but dude the wrong the an environment if you let it will turn you in t- into a fucking animal man yeah well i was gonna say like that reminds me of when i was in uh junior high we had these kids this, this is back in the 90s that documentary on hbo came out about little rock it's called banging and little rock about the the war between the bloods and the crypts and little rock mm-hmm. And I remember watching it then thinking, this is a fucking joke, right? This is Little Rock, Arkansas. Like, it's barely a city. Yeah. Right? Like, and there were these kids in my school. And I, so in my town, you had two middle schools, uh, Butterfield and Coleman. And uh, Coleman was the nicer of the two. It was on the, it was part of the higher income part of town. Right. And that's the school that I went to. My parents did really well uh, growing up. And so I'm in this school and there's these kids who claim to be a part of some gang called Deuce Deuce, named after 22 long rifle fucking bullets, which are, you know, that's cute. For sure. And uh, and they were, if I can't remember right, if I can remember right, they were, they were connected to the Crips. And, uh, and you know, I remember like they were throwing up, like talking about throwing up gang signs because their gang sign was just two piece signs, right? Deuce, deuce, and of uh, super creative. Yeah. And, um, and I just remember being like, dude, like, look around you. Like, we're, look at where we live. Like, we don't live 
in a place that like this type of behavior can be can be can be fed and, and grown into you know a full life fucking like i'm a gangbanger I'm like no the fuck you're not you live in van buren arkansas like if a population of thirteen thousand people like you're not a gangbanger you're just an asshole in big fucking shorts you know bad hygiene yeah I mean, and so when I when I when I hear your story and stories like yours, I'm like I'm reminded of that and like these privileged dickheads trying to fucking live this fucking gangbanger life that they've seen on TV, and then you've got people in these actual cities living the actual life because they're in some cases forced into it, or it's all they know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it, it to this day it cracks me up that like these two these. Well, there was three of them. Uh, just, just tried to like put on this persona. Dumbasses. Hey, man, I say knock yourself out. We gonna? <laughs> it's dumb, man. It, it. I don't care for it personally. You're gonna do what you're gonna do. So, yeah. Don't. It's like you want the PTSD. You want that. A lot of people want that shit. Like, why do you want that? Well, what is the fucking glory in that? There's nothing fucking cool about fucking that lifestyle bro is really not like it's really not there's no loyalty between these people there's no fucking they will turn on you in a nanosecond when it comes down to that fucking jail time there's no there's no fucking eye in that team man it's just me and that's all it is and and like people learn that the hard way um what was that rapper, the six nine with the fucking rainbow hair and the teeth and all that shit? Like, yo, mm-hmm. bro, you're not like that, really. And when that time came, knocking some serious decades of fucking jail time, those people roll on everybody. The fucking yeah. they're rolled for sound, man. They're fucking they're wearing a wire. They're fucking broadcasting the, to the network news about everything they know to get their ass out of jail because. I wasn't really about that life. I was just playing. Those people are real over there. Don't fuck around and find yourself in that situation, man, because before you know it, those decades will come knocking, and they're going to want you to roll on somebody, and if you're not built for it, man, stay out. Yeah. Mm. Um, Yeah. So, next question. Yeah, next question. Um... Okay, this is a pretty good one because uh, I think we can talk about this um, immediately after the deployment and then, you know, 5, 10, 20 years later. In what ways has PTSD affected your daily life since returning from deployment and how have you coped with its impact? Hmm. <clears throat> My PTSD, uh, I really don't like to interact with a lot of folks. I would prefer to stay in the house. Um. I'm a paranoid person. The shootings that go on, the mass shootings freak me out. Like I've spoken before about that, but I know a couple people who were killed in mass shootings, a child for fuck's sakes, uh, as a, as a parent with a child, like I would rather have him stay home because I know he's safe here and I can defend him. But out there in the street, it's nothing I can do to help. Um, so I have that kind of fucking PTSD worry, just constant fear that something's going to happen to my family and I can't defend them, uh, like I could do if I was in a war zone normally, if I could walk around with a rifle 
in a helmet and a vest, I would, but I can't. That's one thing that fucks me up more than anything is the fact that I have like a family now and I have Mm. to care for so many more people. Like if you're single, God bless you. You got no worries. You're fucking fine, man. Who gives a fuck about nothing? But once you have kids, fuck. If you care for those kids, if you're a real human and you give a shit about your kids, like it's kind of scary, man. Uh, school shootings who the fuck shoots up a school like churches grocery stores fucking malls you can't go anywhere without you know back I mean it's not even the back thing without shit like that happening and that fucking scares me it does I'm not gonna sit there and act like it doesn't um so like comparing that to being deployed I'm ready for it. You know, there's no place for me to go. But but now it's just different, man. And it's it it's tough for me. That's one thing that I really do struggle with more than anything. Yeah, and you're the type of person that you take on the full weight of that. Like you you take on the full responsibility of that because you have the experiences and the knowledge and you know how to respond in those scenarios. So you take on the full weight of that. Um which is good and it's bad because it's a, with, with that comes a fuck ton of stress. Yes. A fuck ton of stress. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so for me, like now, um, my biggest thing is um, I tend to be pretty antisocial, although I'm also very social, which is backwards, I guess. Yeah. I don't mind talking to people, but like, you know, um, I think for me, my biggest thing is. Um, hypervigilance the same thing just constantly aware constantly on guard um if i hear a noise in the middle of the night like i'm awake my eyes are like this mm-hmm. if my dog's ears perk up um and they're like they've done it a couple of times so they'll perk up and they'll look towards the direction that they hear the sound uh like we're laying in bed and uh like if they're looking out the window my very first thought is i'm gonna lay there be silent for a little bit i'm gonna slowly get out of my bed I'm going to grab one of my guns that has the fucking light on it and I'm clearing my backyard, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm clearing my way from my bedroom to my back door so I can clear my backyard. Um, <clears throat> that's a big thing. Um, for me anyway, nowadays, um, and just kind of like the, the physical effects of it. Uh, a lot of people don't think about like the physical effects of PTSD. So like, uh, my sleep is fucked up. Um, but it's always been kind of fucked up ever since I came back. When I first came home, I couldn't sleep. I would, I would, I would be awake for days on end. Um, hmm. I never had, had issues with that. I never had any issues with sleep. Really? Mm-mm, never. Yeah. Never, never had uh, even, never even had nightmares. Believe it or not. Really? Yeah. No, I, I did. Um, and 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 recently, I have been having them again. Um, I'm not really sure what that's all about, but. Um, no, I uh, for the longest time I didn't have dreams. But when I when I first came home, they were all combat related dreams. I usually was getting killed, assassinated, executed, whatever, um, or people would be dying around me. Um, but now, like yeah, so like I have a hard time going to sleep. So it's a tad bit of insomnia. Um, so like there's the, the, the physical effects of, of that as well. Um, so one thing that has impacted me um, that I don't think guys talk about enough is um, uh, I was I was. Uh, diagnosed with uh, ed um so <laughs> you have to take a thing for that 
Um, and that actually impacted relationships that I had because I was worried about like my ability to perform in those scenarios. Um, because it was a constant, like maybe it's there, maybe it's not, you know, um, relationships have always been, uh, problematic for me. Um, because I'm very direct and I'm very, uh, yeah, very direct. And I, I guess it comes off as cold. Like I see, thanks to seeing war, I think, and just the, 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 the military lifestyle style in general, like I'm very black and white, um, when it comes to, um, how I respond to scenarios. Um, and, uh, so that was kind of a thing I, I've been, like I said I, before, I've been told that I'm cold and distant, mm-hmm. uh, not present in the relationship. Um, that has, that has caused quite a few to just tank, um, which is fine. Because, you know, if, if, if you're not willing to understand, like, why I am the way I am, and I, and I do make an effort to be present, but if you're not willing to understand why I am the way I am, then, you know, which is why I'm thankful for my, my current relationship, because she, she goes above and beyond. And, you know, she's, she's kind of been there as well. Not deployed, but, you know, similar circumstances. Um, anger was a big one for me. When I first came home, dude, I was fucking angry all the time i remember uh i had been drinking we were out on uh where all the bars are in fort smith and uh hanging out with jessica and some other friends and i just i was fucking livid i don't even remember why and like i was screaming and yelling and fucking veins bulging out of my face you know mad and jessica told me and she's she's known me for by this point, fucking 25, 26 years. And she, she's told me that like, when she looked into my eyes, she saw nobody. There was nobody home. There was nothing, just black. Um, like I, like a, like a possession almost like there was just nobody there. So, uh, I left, I went walking around to cool off. And next thing I know, I'm bawling my eyes out. Cause that's not me, right? Like I used to be a happy fucking kid and that's not me. And next thing I know, I've got the police called on me. Um, and like fucking four or five squad cars pull up and like, I'm sitting there on this fucking curb, like bawling my eyes out. And, uh, fortunately the cops were like super understanding. It's like, like I just got back from Iraq, um, last year or whenever this was, and I'm, I'm just struggling. And like one of them sat down and talked to me and, we got along well. And, uh, they asked you, you know, do I have anywhere that I can stay? And I said, yeah, I'm right over there. And like, okay, well, you need to get over there because despite all of this, like we can also arrest you for, you know, public and talks and whatever other charges they could think of. So, uh, you know, I was fortunate that that didn't go down that way, but, um, my anger manifested a lot, um, when I was drinking and when I was driving, hmm. uh, my, I, <laughs> I was going to school my first day going to school, uh, after the army and like, I'm fucking flying down the interstate in my fucking that 2003 Mustang. I used to have that Hell gray yeah. one shadow flying point. through traffic, dude. <laughs> and this car cuts me the fuck off and is just like swerving back and forth trying to stay in front of me. And I'm trying to get past him, whatever. And I finally do. And as I pass him, I fucking flip him off like, fuck you motherfucker. And I'm like angry. Mm-hmm. And this dude like gets on my tail and I see him reach up and grab this thing. He's talking on it. I'm like, Uh-oh. is that a fucking cop? It wasn't a cop <laughs> car though. 
And after a couple of miles, he fucking turns on the fucking lights. Mm. And it's a turns out he was an off duty fucking state trooper. He was a lieutenant with the state trooper or captain with the state uh, the state troopers there. And he pulled in. He was laying into me, man. And like suddenly, I wasn't angry anymore. And I realized the error of my ways. And you know, I I, I didn't tell him like you know I I just got back from Iraq six months ago or anything like that. that, that to me, that always seemed like an excuse, right? That always seemed like a thing yeah. that people say to get out of trouble or whatever. Um, but yeah, no, my my anger was always really bad. Um, it has since been uh, a lot better. But I think the way I learned to control it is I decided that I want to be angry, so I'm just going to shut off my emotions. And that's where people will come up with the whole thing, like I'm emotionless. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard for me to display affection. It's hard for me to display happiness, typically. Um, it's it's hard for me to do a lot, even now, 20 years later. Like, it's still very hard for me to do a lot of those things. Um, so there's that. Same here. I have a lot of, uh, you, if you didn't know me and you just looked at me, you saw me just walking around, you would assume I was like a mad person. Uh, <laughs> when I'm really not, I just don't want to talk to people. I don't want to deal with other extra interactions. I don't want to handle, like I can only handle so much. I can't handle more people. Um, I feel you 1,000 billion trillion percent on the driving angry. I hit, I got into an accident. Did I tell you about this? Yeah. 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 In my head, it was me and my son. This is how bad I I was. Thank God I went to therapy and I'm working on it. But I picked my son up from school and I'm driving along the far right lane and this car kind of comes over and slightly bumps my car. But I was going at a really high speed. And this fucking guy hit me and took off. I'm like, what the fuck? In my head, my son was no longer my son. He was my partner. And I'm screaming at him, get on the radio to call the police. I'm chasing this suspect is what I'm screaming at my son in the car. He's looking at me like I'm fucking crazy. Now that I'm looking at it now, like, yeah, I was fucking crazy. I caught up with his car and I rammed the car sideswiped it to get him to stop that fucking car was on I mean and I hit him on Anthony's side of the car that had no Mm. fucking care for the safety of my own son that's fucking terrible like I cried like a baby later on when I really thought about what the fuck I just put my own son through because I'm fucking I couldn't deal with you know, my own personal shit. So, you know, thank God I went to therapy and I worked on that. I still get a little pissed off when people do dumb shit when I'm driving. But, you know, now yeah. I'm understanding that ain't me. It's okay. Um, But I've always had the road rage. But I'm really trying to work on that. Particularly when I have another passenger in the car with me. Because, again, yeah. I don't want to throw anybody else in that situation where they're like, fuck, I can't ride with this dude. He's fucking insane. And you know what's funny, or ironic, <laughs> rather, I guess, is that, so I also, I don't typically do well in, like, crowd settings. Like, I can't stand, unless, like, I'm there for a very specific reason and I feel like I'm somewhat safe, but even then, like, I'm still alert and aware, hypervigilant. But, like, like I can go to, like, I can go to certain concerts, <laughs> but, like, uh, 
some shows, if I'm not really invested in, in, in where I am or the, or the band, whatever, then I'm at the very back and I make sure I have something behind me. Um, not someone. Yeah. But, uh, if I'm really invested in it for some reason, I can, I can almost cut it off. Um, but, uh, it, it is funny to me that, uh, for, for the bulk of my, you know, time after the military, I, I, I worked in jobs where I drove <laughs> a lot because I get to be by myself. You know, yeah. I'm in this vehicle by myself driving for work, mm-hmm. you know, but like, I also have anger problems and, you know, uh, it's a little, you know, road rage, you know? Yeah. So I think that's a little uh, bit, can I, I feel like there's a lot of veterans out there who can, who can definitely relate because, you know, a, a perfect job for someone like that who doesn't want to be around people and doesn't want to deal with the office setting or whatever it is, you know, trucking, right. Uh, you know, OCR stuff, mm-hmm. you know, but now you're behind this 18 wheeler, you know, hauling whatever, and you're dealing with asshole drivers. So it takes a lot of restraint. Um, to not plow through someone's fucking little fucking hatchback because you know there's some dumbass that doesn't know how to drive and yeah. you've got PTSD. <laughs> Ooh, that's one of the reasons but, why I wanted to be a CHP, uh, California Highway Patrol, because they work by themselves. Like mm-hmm. I thought I could just fucking be in the car all fucking day long with myself. Uh, people would slow down when they get around me, so I wouldn't have to get out and give tickets constantly because you know people are afraid of the cops for no reason. Like, that was my thought process behind that, kind of back in the day. was like, I don't want to do anything too crazy. I mean, that did not work out. <laughs> yeah. But, fuck, man. That was my thought behind that. Work, uh, drive, because I love to drive, and be my myself, because I don't have to worry about anybody else. Yeah. Yeah. And then I failed the um, test, and I went to the LAPD. <laughs> <laughs> I do know that when I, whenever I came home, um, talking about like the effects of PTSD when mm. it first hit. Um, that scene in American Sniper where, where Bradley Cooper was playing Chris Kyle is sitting in his living room in the, in the chair and he's staring at the TV and there's like war sound going off and machine gun fire and all that stuff. And the camera pans around to see his point of view and the TV's not even on. Like that scene hit me so hard because that was me um, pretty much the summer well the summer really the summer fall of uh 2005 i would sit in my recliner that i had in my bedroom at my parents house and i would stare at this tv that wasn't even on for hours like not just like two or three hours but like hours like long fucking time and um i would just sit there and i would smoke because i used to smoke and i would just sit there and just stare at this fucking tv and just I don't know if I was reliving things or what was going on, but that I just, I was not functional. Um, that was a thing for sure. I actually, I, I wrote something about it. I, I don't know what happened to it, but I used to write. That was, a, that was way, that was, I think that was one thing that you and I used um, to kind of get a lot of the stuff out as we wrote a lot. Um, yep. I don't know if it helped or not, but, um, but yeah. Yeah, man, that was, uh, that scene hit home for me because, that was a 100% reality for me. Yeah. There's a lot of movies I avoid. Because I just don't want the... I don't want it. I don't want the extra... I don't need the flashback. Like, that's where I am now in life anyway. Like, I don't need to see that shit. 
pressing forward, trying not to live in the past with things like trying to be in the present where I am now. That's so fucking hard. I don't know why. I'm always thinking about the future with something, worried about the future with something, or concerned about some shit that I did way back in the past that I can't fucking change or barely remember now. Mm-hmm. Like, that's a fucking trip, man. Yeah. No. Yeah, no, it is. It is hard to live in the present. It is hard to live in, in, the, in the current moment. Mm-hmm. But I'm uh, getting there, though. I'm almost there where I can just be here. Mm-hmm. Thanks to the medical miracle of magical mushrooms. Miracle, miracle of magical mushrooms. Hey, man. <laughs> shit works. Like, uh, I've had my own little serious. My last one that I've had was, like, extremely significant. And I, Is that I'm the one sh- you told me about? Yeah. 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 It was, uh, it was cool. Like, it wasn't a sad thing. It was closure. Like, I tell y'all, like, I, I feel bad about the way uh, that my father passed. And, for the longest time, I felt like this extreme amount of guilt on how everything happened, uh, not being there for him. And one night I had a very strong dose of some stuff that I bought from a place that I'll tell you about when it's legally okay. Anyway, uh, and I did it with purpose. Now, normally I would fucking have my mushrooms and watch TV and fucking Google, look at the wall as it melts. But this time I actually went in with the the fucking purpose to talk to dad and it fucking worked. I felt like it's a huge weight off my shoulders and yeah. And I haven't really had much. Well, no, I have another bag over here that I'm saving for another time of something I need to deal with. And I'm taking a lot less of my psych psych meds. I'm not on the fucking Wellbutrin I mean, I still have them, but I haven't been taking them so much. I just don't think I need it. Just- I think that is one of the – not to say that your experience uh, with your dad wasn't significant, but I, I would think that getting off of pharmaceuticals completely is pretty fucking significant Be- just because of the side effects of it and the fact that you are totally relying on it for as long as you need to take them. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But if you can – I mean, there, and there's a ton of studies and we, you know, we, I, w- I wish that was one thing that we had gone over on that, that one show we did with the guy, mm-hmm. um, with, with the, the founder of PsychX, but I wish we would have had some numbers, some percentages based on studies because those, those percentages are fucking astronomical. Like they are undeniably great. Yeah. Like you're talking like a 90 some odd percent success rate in treating people with depression, PTSD and anxiety. Insane. They haven't seen those kind of numbers anywhere else in anything else in any other form of treatment they're not seeing the same results that they're seeing with with psychedelic mushrooms yep i mean if that doesn't fucking speak volumes about the efficacy of them are but the, are the greed of these fucking the corporations question. they hmm? can't or i said are the greed of the corporations who can't make enough money off of it or they haven't figured yeah. out how to tax it properly yet yeah. Once they figure that out, we'll be great. We'll be golden. Once they can make yeah. their money. <laughs> whew. Yeah. And once they learn how to take all of our money for all of our shit. Oh, yeah. Whew. Yeah. Good to go. <clears throat> yeah. Check then it's, check. it comes down to what's what's worth more to you, your well-being or uh, being able to pay your bills. Yeah. Being able to live in this economy. Yeah. Being able to eat normally. Yeah. Not, not ramen noodles every night. <clears throat> 
But that does sign to the next question. Um, uh, what, uh, how did you first seek support or treatment um, when you first started noticing the symptoms or signs of PTSD? I didn't. I, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah. Oof. There you go. <laughs> yeah. There was no, I, I had no, no, I, I figured, and it's the wrong thing to figure. This is normal. This is how it's going to be. And I'm just going to tough this out. Mm-hmm. Like it, that is the wrong answer, especially like I say with the family, I've been with my wife for damn near 20 years now, like married for quite a while. Like, uh, was it 16 years? So it'll be 16 years this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but like she can tell you more than anybody else. Like she forced me to go get some help because I was not, not caring, not really not like I, I was like not a care in the world, but I didn't care. Is that I figured it was normal because you know I saw fucked up shit, so I should be fucked up. Is what I thought. Yeah. You know what I thought was normal. You know what I thought everybody else also experienced suicidal ideation, mm. suicidal thoughts. I thought everybody walked around like that. I thought everybody had those thoughts. I was. That's probably one of the most mind blowing things that I learned in my life when I went to the VA and I, I, I sat down and I spoke with um, a lady and um, this is when I got diagnosed with stuff, but she was like, I said, I mean, I just never really talked about it because like, I mean, it's normal. Everybody thinks about that stuff. And she's like, no, no, they don't No, People do not walk around thinking of that stuff. People typically walk around having the exact opposite of those thoughts. I mean, sure, some people can be unhappy with their lives and unhappy with their current situation or whatever they're unhappy with in those moments. But, like, they're, the average person is not walking around considering or planning out their own death. Yeah. And I was just like, excuse me? <laughs> uh, and I told her, I was like, well, I want to I be that. I, I want that. And she told me this was the other this is another big fucking uh, mind blowing thing that she told me that I learned. I can't. She said that you will never be able to unsee the things that you've seen. You will never be able to undo the things that you think are bad that you've done. Never. You can accept them for what they are and try to not live in the past, live in the present and try and make a better future, but you will never be able to unsee and undo those things. So therefore, you will never, ever not be able to be aware of those things. You will never, ever be able to live your life not knowing that humans can do absolute horrible shit to each other. Like some people do. Like some people do live that fucking life. Like, and now that we're getting into like war is televised, like with what's going on in Ukraine and Russia and Israel and, and Palestine and everyone war everywhere is, right now. It's fucking wild. Yeah. War is televised. War is, is on fucking TV. The, 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 the horrors of war you can read about, you can watch on TV and it's one thing to read it in a newspaper or in a magazine article or an online article, or whatever, but to see the actual footage of it is a completely different thing. It's a game changer. And now people are starting to see, what we lived through, what we experienced in war and what you experienced as a cop. And uh, people are struggling with it. You know, that's why, you know, more and more when all these conflicts start to pop up, like there are, you know, anti-war protests and, you know, 
defend this side, defend that side. And now there's people who are at, at, at each other's fucking, you know, at each other over which side is the right side. Um, and you know, I mean, for, fortunately, fortunately, they're not having to live those experiences. Fortunately, they're just seeing them on TV and just finally waking up to the fact that like the world can be a pretty terrible place and they're not having to actually be in those places when all this bad shit happens. Mm. Cause a lot of people are just not prepared for that. They're, they're not mentally trained for that. And, and I'm not saying that like in the military, we're mentally trained for that because we definitely weren't, we're not mentally primed for that. We were mentally primed to kill other people. That's true. When you go to a gun range in the military or in the civilian world, you can, you can buy targets that look like humans. Right. And that was by design um, going back to post-World War One, World War II time frame when, you know, in the military, uh, basic rifle marksmanship was shooting at a bullseye. Well, people don't look like bullseyes, and they found that in, in combat people weren't shooting at other people because they're not used to it. So now we went to this fucking silhouette-type target that looks like a human at a distance, and that's what we're training to shoot at. So when we go to combat, we can actually shoot at those those silhouettes because we're not seeing a person. We're seeing a target. Mm -hmm. We've been primed to think that this person shape is the target. And, you know, that's just, that's just one way that we've been mentally primed to shoot at another human being, but we're not mentally prepared for what should happen when we do it. When the reality of what I just did, you know, hits us because if, unless you are a psychopath, like this is this is a true thing. You can read about it in Dave Grossman's book um, on killing. Unless you're a true psychopath, you don't have the ability to kill another human being unless you have been specifically trained to do so. Um, or you find yourself in the right situation to defend. Um, and that's where you get like some of these like uh, you know people who kill in self defense, whatever. Um, but. There was there was a trend on social media not too long ago about, you know, people would ask mothers the question of, you know, would you kill for your children? And a lot of them were like, kill for them? Oh, man, that's such a big task. Like, I just don't think I could, I mean, like, I'd beat somebody up for them. I would do this and I would do that. But, like, kill? Oh, I don't know. And in my mind, I didn't a fucking brainer. I mean, I don't have kids, but, like, that's a no fucking brainer. Right. Like. like what? Yeah, it's insane to me. The words you're saying yeah. don't make any sense. Yeah, like to, to me, that's 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 as easy as like that's an easy enough decision. I mean, that's you know, that's I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but yeah, I think they they just haven't been in that situation or even can comprehend the situation to know like revenge killing or even yeah. defense killing. Like that's what, yeah. they just haven't lived that kind of life. That's you kind of what I'm getting at, though, yeah. right? Now that war is being televised, people are being opened up to mm. the atrocities of war and what actually happens, the bad shit that happens. And, you know, I think more and more people are, are starting to understand, like, we don't live in this peaceful place. I think, you know, on, on a certain level, people understood that we don't live in this peaceful place. But, like, now they're being able to actually see it. Mm -hmm. um, so... We're a little off the topic of how do we seek support or treatment, and um, I will say like I didn't, I didn't seek any. Yeah, didn't, um, did not. Huh? See, yeah, same here. Didn't. No, I, I mean I did talk to my uncle, um, who had served, and I, you know, I took from him what I could, and then he gave my parents a book, um, how to live with somebody with PTSD, 
And um, so they read that and they understood like, you know, how they should be or whatever. But um, I did eventually go talk to uh, the VA about some stuff, but they told me that the wait time for uh, therapy, whatever was like six months. And I was like, six months. Okay. Uh, I will say in, in, in recent times doing the show has helped a lot, you know, because it just, it just, it's just like when I was a drill, right. And I was able to like, tell my, tell my story and give them, you know, the honest truth about what they're about to get into. It's kind of the same thing, but now we're talking to other people about their experiences and how it's helped, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, being able to open up about stuff. Like I never talked about my, um, um, suicide stuff until this show. I never talked about it to anybody, anybody. Yeah. I didn't know until you spoke about it on here, man. Yeah. And it was because of that, that I was able to actually go to the VA and talk to him about that. You know what I'm saying? So, mm-hmm. um, that is, that is like, this show has definitely helped a lot in doing this stuff. I mean, even if, and we've always kind of said this, like, you know, even if uh, like nobody really listens, if somebody listens and they get, you know, help from it or whatever, then so be it. You know, if we can only help one, that's great. And if we just help each I feel other, like, fuck. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the next let's see here so as someone who has overcome significant challenges what advice would you give to others who may be experiencing experiencing ptsd or struggling with its effects get help yeah go talk to somebody it's not (laughs) it's not too late man it's never too late to fucking talk to somebody yeah and get over the fucking stigma that that admitting there's something wrong with you admitting that you are psychologically damaged or uh, traumatized is bad like the stigma that men cannot go seek help is is killing men mm-hmm. and in in cases it's also killing other people because men are losing their shit and they're not seeking the fucking help that they need the help that they deserve and this goes this doesn't just apply for like men who are in uh combat i mean like man in general yeah. men males in general fucking talk about it man and if you can't talk about it with your partner then you're with the wrong person yep Black man, go see therapist, man. It's nothing wrong with black people going to talk to somebody. We got this big fucking thing in the black uh, community that, you know, you see a therapist, you're crazy. Like, nah, man, you should probably go see a therapist, psychiatrist, anything, man. Uh, Whatever you need to help you not give up on life because it's easy to give up. Like, life is hard. Don't get me wrong, but it's not, it's not that. It's just not that. It's okay. It doesn't have to be hard alone. Yeah, it does not have to be that at all. It, it can be. It could be okay, man. Just, uh, just gotta stick through it. I know, like, it, it may seem like an easy thing to say, like, just stick through it, like, uh, everything is gonna be fine, man. Just, you know, pat you on your back, but no, man. Like, talk to somebody, but it'll be okay. And it's okay to be emotional about shit too. Like, open up about stuff. I promise it'll make you a better person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's that. Honestly, that's that's the biggest thing I can think of. Go talk about it, and I would I would add into that. I never I never took anything like antidepressants or anti anxiety anti anxiety medication, uh, just because I'm really against pharmaceuticals in general. Um, and and so maybe you have some input on this, but like. I know when I when I first got diagnosed with the VA, one of the first things they told me is, "What about pharmaceuticals?" 
what about medication? And it was a, that was the very first thing they offered. It wasn't to seek therapy or to go talk to somebody. It was, what about medication? We can put you on something. Mm-hmm. And I said, no, I don't, I don't want to be reliant on that. I want to be able to figure it out. I want to, PTSD will never go away. You just learn to live with it better. You learn to carry it better. Um, you get stronger mentally to deal with it better. And that's what I would rather do. Um, so I would, I would say, say no to the medication question. Try and become mentally stronger first. I don't know. What do you think, Terry? Yeah. Um, I took my medication because I thought it would help me out because I was at that point that I thought only medication would help me. Um, but really more and more, the more I speak to people about things, the more I talk to my therapist about stuff, the more I talk to my wife about things, the more I talk to you about stuff, the more I've just been able to talk. I've felt the pressure of some things off my shoulders. Um, I'm not not saying like uh, it's medication isn't for everybody. That's what I'll say for that. For me, it worked out. It, it may not work out for other folks, um, but medication plus therapy is is the key. It's not just. Uh, it's not just one or the other. I mean, you can maybe do it off of therapy alone, but um, if you take the medication, you should probably definitely have therapy also. Um, and be open to what other people have to say. The thing about therapy, folks, is like uh, they're not there giving you the answers. It, it, that's not the point of therapy. It's to help you find your own answers for yourself. Uh, figure out your own truth for whatever reason and figure out why that's affecting you. My therapist is this cool ass Jewish dude. <laughs> he's older. He's like really old. He's like not, not that old. Hopefully he doesn't hear this bashing on him, but he's, he's a great dude. And uh, we have deep fucking conversations about shit. And I fucking realize that, you know, I'm doing some things in the wrong way sometimes. He's never going to say you shouldn't do this, but he's guiding me along this path. And I appreciate that. And I wish more people would do it. But, you know, here we are. Sucks. <clears throat> yeah, I would say the same thing, man. Like, I mean, I, I see your point, though. Yeah, that like medication is not necessarily for everybody. Um. I I was just so afraid because I mean I I know people who have taken it and then like they talk to me about the side effects or you know whatever and mm-hmm. that is what uh, t- uh kind of turned me away from it or scared me off of it or whatever yeah. like I don't want to be a zombie I don't want to fucking have these other side effects I got to take this other medication for mm-hmm. That's and true. Uh, you know for better for worse I suppose but yeah I can definitely see your point and I and I do completely agree if you are taking medication and you're not getting help you're not going to therapy you're not talking to psychologists or whoever then you are i feel like doing your disservice and you're trying to rely on that medication to fix you and you are trying to you're you're not working to be off of it um because i don't i don't feel like i kind of feel like most medications i mean i'm not a 
not a scientist, not a doctor, so I don't really know all the medications and all that stuff. But I feel like in a lot of these cases, um, or in some of these cases, um, you know, maybe they should be to help stabilize you in the t- in the in the in the now or in the near future or whatever in the present. But the eventual goal is to work off of them. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I mean, I, I, I obviously understand like there are some cases like you know if you're on an antipsychotic medication or whatever, then you know maybe stay on that one. Yeah, know. you need what you <laughs> but, need. Yeah, you need what you need. Um, but I, I will say uh, the the you know, like we talked about a second ago, like the numbers. I'm telling you, like I, I wish I wish I had numbers in front of me. Psychedelics work. Like there's. Like I, I get emails from the VA constantly, um, as I'm sure most of you, uh, other veterans do who are enrolled at the VA. And there's been in the last four or five months, several emails to come out that had psychedelics in the fucking subject line yeah, and about how the VA is preparing to use them. Mm-hmm. Um, ketamine clinics, uh, using MDMA, um, in controlled environments, using psychedelics like mushrooms uh, um, in controlled environments, and the 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 positive it's unfucking deniable. The VA is looking into this stuff. That should tell you a lot, right? If the VA, a government agency, is looking into these things and helping veterans get over PTSD and all these other things, that should tell you a lot. And it's not one of those like bullshit, like oh, the VA is just doing whatever they can or whatever to get by there are independent studies outside of the government dating back to the fucking fifties that prove this shit works, but it's illegal. (laughs) So it is what it is. That's what I'm saying. Just until we can figure out how to tax it properly, which I don't understand why it's a hard thing to figure out. Sell it for $20 and tax it five, whatever. Fuck. I don't give a fuck to sell it because you can make your own. Well, yeah, we can't let everyone know what I have going on in here, though. <laughs> I mean, but that's it, though, right? Like, uh, it's hard to tax marijuana. I mean, they found a way to do it now with, like, dispensaries and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and having to have a card to, to be in possession of it. But, uh, you know, you can grow your own plants in your house. Just don't tell anybody about it. No, you can definitely like I don't said broadcast show, it on before I forget the number one uh, veteran podcast in the, all of the land <laughs> at, at least on this channel yeah uh, but like like i said in that last show man like you can order the spores and you can make your own growing um facility or whatever you can do that yeah no you can I, I've it's seen illegal everything. to combine the two yeah have you so, seen the the little grow um we'll talk online offline we'll talk offline <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, you're talking about the bags. I've seen the bags. No, I've no, no. This is like a like a this self-containing cup. All it's that everything you need in it. All you got to do is insert uh, the spores. As long as you keep it clean, like they say, within like two, three, oh, two months, you should have a fully bloomed whole deal ready to go. I'm seriously huh. considering uh, dabbling a little, a little bit of that, man. I've never grown anything in my life besides my boy. Say- I'm gonna give it a shot. I, w- I will say, I mean, aside from psychedelics, like, okay, so let's just remove psilocybin mushrooms completely. Like, and there's a lot of strains of that. Yeah. Mushrooms are actually super amazing for you. Mm. I can't stand them, so I don't eat them at all. I love them. However, mm. uh, you know, like, uh, oh, my God, I, w- I wish I 
had planned to talk about this because I could have told you more, but like lion's mane, for example, probably one of the most well-known uh, mushrooms that you can get has a ton of fucking benefits for you, like mind, body, and soul kind of benefits. Um, I think it's considered a form of nootropic as well. Um, so there is some like, uh, if you've watched that movie um, with Bradley Cooper where he takes the pill and suddenly he's a genius. Limitless. Limitless. Yeah. Um, so that's that, that pill is a form of nootropic and obviously it's an extremely exaggerated uh, form of it. Like you're not going to eat a nootropic and end up with a four digit IQ, but oh, you know, yeah. it is supposed to help with memory issues and uh, knowledge like retention, information retention and shit like that. Mm-hmm. And I, if I'm not mistaken, lion's mane falls under that category as well. Um, and there's other, there's other mushrooms you can eat. So you can, you can buy these things and you can grow your own shiitake and lion's mane and whatever else. Yeah. I have a friend of mine that does it. Um, she has really, really decent flushes of uh, all these different types of, uh, completely legal and very useful and, um, uh, beneficial mushrooms. Yeah. So I just can't bring myself to eat mushrooms, man. Like I'm, I'm ruined because, you know, like diced canned mushrooms, like all slimy and fucking gross oh, those are the nasty ones though like you, a good pepperoni and mushroom pizza oh hell no tits on glass is what they would say that is tits on glass pepperoni mushroom pizza <sighs> beautiful no man i can't do it i can't do it i uh you remember, so when we were in iraq one of the, i can't remember what mri it is but it has mushrooms and i didn't know that oh, and i'm sitting there okay. fucking eating it scooping it out of the pouch you know and I look down and I see there's a mushroom in my fucking pouch and like I immediately start dry heaving and like oh. <laughs> it was so fucking bad, dude. It's like That's this funny. mental allergy that I've acquired somehow. And I think a lot of it is because I, I understand that mushrooms are a fungus that grow on dead things. And so in my mind, that's what a mushroom is. But um, they're one of the oldest creatures on this planet. You know, um, uh, trees have a, this underground. Uh, you know, you go to the forest; they have this like underground communication network. Um, that is managed by mycelium, mm-hmm. uh, the, the mycelial network. Um, they they really are a fascinating creature, um, mushrooms in general, like and fungus in general. But you, you won't catch me eating them. Have you ever had one of the the black truffles, the really expensive ones? Fuck no. Oh man, it'll change your life. Dude, you could tell me that thing tastes like fucking cream cheese icing. <laughs> and I will punch you in the face. No, it, it's <laughs> it's really good, dude. Like uh, you gotta expand your horizons or whatever the fuck they say. Open okay, so shit. let me ask you this: You know how people like they order um, sh- shiitake? Uh, it's sh- like shiitake mushrooms, like the whole little mushrooms that come out and people get on their plate and they look all. You know what I'm talking about? Is that, is that are those shiitake? Shiitake mushrooms are usually uh, fuck man. Um, they have the. I forget. I don't want to give you the wrong information. I know the with the shiitake they're longer, like the big caps, right? Or are they smaller? I don't. I don't fucking know. I just get the. I normally get the white mushrooms from the store, grocery store. Some fucking portobello mushrooms. Every now and oh, then okay. you might see sh- shiitake, but it's kind of rare where I live. I was gonna say like you guys were talking about mushrooms and all this kind of cool stuff, but don't go out in the in the fucking forest just picking these shits up and eating them. Like, Absolutely, uh, do not do that. <laughs> there are some, there are some out there that 
are not good for you that will straight up kill you. We have hundreds of thousands of years of, of, of human existence and trial and error to figure out which ones are good and which one's bad. Yeah. You don't need to do that. Yeah. You can, the, you could download an app. There's an app called seek S E E K. And mm-hmm. actually it's a fun app. Actually uh, you can go out and identify like plants and animals and, and uh, insects and all that spiders. Yeah. And uh, you can, do that with with mushrooms too but yeah shiitake is the one i was talking about and they just look just disgusting to me no. when they're cooked they look a little I, like spookyish kind of right like uh what's, like what's uh, like your normal mushroom looks like a normal mushroom but this one looks like uh special like a mushroom on acid kind of <laughs> like no, like no, really weird looking around, they're about this big around uh-huh. Um, I think they usually include a part, a part of the stem and they're just kind of, they're brown or whatever. I don't oh, know. Man. I just, I, you know, honestly, they, they kind of look like they could taste good, but Salt it's a whole lot of mushroom and I just can't make mm. myself do it. All right. All right Maybe next, one day. Next question. We got to, what's the next? Um, well, honestly, I think through the conversation, we kind of talked about all the rest of these. Um, okay. coping mechanisms, um, relationships with your friends and family, uh, turning points or moments that mark significant progress in your healing, um, and stigmas. So we kind of have actually hit on all the rest no, of we these. We hit it all, man. Um, so I think, I think, I think with that, I would say the biggest takeaway from this fucking from this whole episode is ignore the stigma, get help. If there's something wrong, get help. It's not manly to try and tough it out. Yeah. It the 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 concept of what is manly has uh has needs to the the I, yeah it needs to stay in 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 uh, the 1940s and 50s where gender roles were a thing and the man went to work and the woman worked in the kitchen, like that. You just need to get that shit out of your head, men. You need to be able to talk about what's bothering you. You need to be able to get it out. And if you don't have somebody in your life, then you're dealing with the wrong people. Yeah. You really are. You have the wrong friends. You have the wrong significant other. Um, you need to seek therapy. Um, and therapy is becoming more accessible now that we, you can, you know, there's apps for that. Oh, yeah. You don't um, even have to leave your house. Yeah. So, um, but like, that's, I, I would say if there was a big takeaway from any of this is get the help that you need. Admit that you need that help and then get that help. You know, admit there's a problem and then, you know, contact Vanilla Ice because yo, he'll solve it. (laughs) And I couldn't, uh, I couldn't end this episode any better myself. This was a great show. I think, uh, you know, we don't speak about mental health and, uh, just well-being enough. Um, yeah. I really can't put it any better than you just put it, man. Uh, saying, or to tell, for us to say, hey, seek therapy, it is, isn't a bad thing, man. It's not a bad thing. Talk to somebody. Um, let it all out. Uh, and if you can't let it out, just understand that if someone else is trying to do that, don't get in their way. Don't be a dickhead about it. Don't try to put them down for going to therapy. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really it, man. Crying I'm, is okay. 
Oh yeah, I cry like a baby. I cry yeah. too much now. No, I cry enough. No, yeah, I mean, that was why. So you want to hear something wild? If I, if I, I'll cry during the national anthem. <laughs> like, you almost left. I did, um, but I'll cry. I'll, I'll cry during the national anthem because it reminds me of of, of uh, a very specific event when we were in Iraq, and uh, it was the one where where you and I think it was Caldwell got separated. And you all were on a separate rooftop. Oh yeah, that that night raid that we did, mm-hmm. we took we started taking incoming, and uh, I had the radio at the time, and I'm sitting there and like through my night vision, I'm in, I'm watching a Bradley in a tank, an Abrams tank, and uh, there were. It was an RPG team on top of this building that we later found out, I think, was the police headquarters. Of course. And uh, and uh, so I watched the Bradley light up this fucking rooftop with 25 heat. And I watched this fucking Abrams tank light up the same target uh, with a 50 cal. Wouldn't be cool to see the main gun, but whatever. Beggars can't be choosers, I guess. <laughs> But like I'm sitting there watching this through the night vision, and I'm just like blasting the, these fucking tracers, you know what I mean, and like the explosion of it all, and and uh, and in that moment, like I was, I was reminded of the bombs bursting in air um, in the national anthem, and so every time I hear the national anthem, I'm reminded of that moment, and then a whole other mess of other uh, uh, memories and emotions and everything else comes out. And yeah. So like, I also have this like un, un uncontrollable urge to want to salute to the national anthem, even if I'm civilian clothes, instead of putting my hand over my heart, like civilians do, you know, in the military, if you're in uniform, we salute. Yeah. If you know, you can, you can, if you're a veteran, you, you are allowed to salute during the national anthem. And I also get super pissed people don't take their fucking hat off or whatever. Yeah, you got to at least take your but, hat off. Yeah. But yeah, so that that is a, uh, I don't know. It's always been a thing that's just that's brought out some uh, emotions in me. It's all you good, know, I get man. all teary-eyed. You're an emotional dude. It's all good. <laughs> and on that note, folks, I'm going to end this show. Thank you for listening to Before I Forget. Please like, listen, share, subscribe. It's nice to have Kevin back on the show uh, more often. Uh, anyway, like I said, like Lear, like Lear, like, listen, share, subscribe, watch, and uh, we'll be back uh, hopefully next week. You got anything, Kevin? No, yeah, that's that's pretty, yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, I'm definitely uh, glad to be back doing it. I had to get some things cleared out of my brain, trying to adjust to my my life uh, now, but uh, it's all good to go. Oh yeah, actually, not even just good to go. It's like fucking taking off, astronomical. We're going to space, boys. So. This has been a good year for everybody, man. It's it's it's. Oh, yeah. I'm gonna cut the music down for a second. It's gonna be a good fucking year, man. I have a feeling. I, think so. I have a feeling, and I'm gonna put it back up. And uh, I'll see you later. Thanks, Kevin. Oh, yeah. Ooh, that was on. That was on accident. That was on accident. Hey, doc. Hey, doc. Bye. Bye. <laughs>